Hello, and welcome to Minding the Forest, a podcast of the Louisiana Forestry Association. I'm your host, Jeff Zarang. In Minding the Forest, we talk about how important sustainable forestry is for everyone, how it benefits our economy, and the importance of keeping forests as forests. If you'd like to get notifications when a new episode of Mind of the Forest is released, click on subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and you'll know when a new episode is ready. We release a new episode of Mind of the Forest each month. We have with us today Keith Hawkins with the LSU Ag Center. He is an area forestry agent. Primarily, though, you also do horticulture. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keith, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Today's subject is prescribed burning, and I know with the dry weather that we've been having, sometimes the term control burn comes in, and uh, I've been told that's not a proper terminology. That works for me. Uh, You talk about prescribed fire or controlled fire. I think that's probably a good term, too. Maybe the public understands that better than prescribed fire. You know, it's a controlled fire as opposed to a wildfire. Okay. Tell us a little bit about... What is prescribed burning? What is that for? Prescribed fire is a management tool in different types of land management. Our uh, friends in the sugarcane industry use it as an agronomic practice. Um, Our friends down on the coast who manage marshlands use it as a wildlife management uh, tool. It can be used as a wildlife management uh, technique in uplands. It's used for fuel reduction in wooded areas. Um, A while back when I was a service forester, we actually burned a state forest so it would make it easier to mark timber. So we were preparing for a timber sale. It's a very cost-effective way of dealing with with brush. Um, Herbicides can be expensive, and sometimes... There's a place for heavy equipment to do some of, some of this management work, but um, that equipment's expensive also. What are some of the benefits of, of using prescribed fire for forest health? Well, in the case of longleaf pine, when the, the trees are in a, uh, what we call the grass stage, a uh, burn will help reduce something called brown spot needle blight. So it's used for managing a a disease, a fungal disease. Uh, The other things, um, I've heard the term thermal thinning, where you you run a fire through a a thick stand of trees, particularly saplings, and that has a thinning effect. So you, instead of the labor-intensive activity of going in with a saw crew to thin things out, the the burn could be an easier, more cost-effective way to do that. It's used in a certain habitat, for example, red cockaded woodpecker likes the longleaf, and the longleaf has a fire ecology. I think the cor- the gopher tortoise benefits from prescribed fires. One year, I had a a a lady call. She and her husband bought a house in the woods. They wanted to learn how to do prescribed burn to reduce fuel around their house. Because in those rare instances, we have had wildfires that have damaged and destroyed property, improved property. Prescribed fire can benefit wildlife. It can benefit, I guess, for nutrient competition for some for some trees or some areas of the forest, or is that inaccurate? 
Um, I think a fire will uh, remove nitrogen and potassium. Wait a minute. Nitrogen and phosphorus. I think the potassium tends to stay. So it, do, it can affect the nutrient cycle in a forest. I think there are people that can speak to that better than I can. Mm-hmm. But it always, uh, after a burn, it always looks pretty and green. The, the forest floor recovers. So uh, I think on balance, it's, it's a, a beneficial practice when it's done correctly. Now, you work with a program that is statewide that helps uh, landowners. Is it particularly smaller landowners who may not have robust management plans, or how, how does well, how, how the, do you approach that? Well, the, the School of Renewable Natural Resources had been teaching land managers how to do prescribed fire in the context of our state laws. And um, I think... I'm trying to remember Leroy Schilling, Leroy Schilling, when he was with uh, the School of Renewable Natural Resources, I asked him, I said, can we do this for private landowners? And he, up until then, he had never taught that, that uh, workshop to anybody but professionals, uh, technicians. And so I think it was about 2010 or so, he came over to DeRitter and we had, uh, he taught that, that class. And I think as near as I can tell, tell from Dr. Schilling, it was the first time he had taught uh, landowners. And so since then, uh, myself and then Brian Chandler started having uh, a burn workshop over in the Florida parishes because I was doing it more in the spring uh, in west central Louisiana, and he was doing it in the fall in the southeast so there was some geographic and uh, temporal balancing there and uh, Whitney Wallace is still coordinating uh, that class she's going to have a class this fall after uh, Dr. Schilling retired uh, Dr. Niels de Hope picked up that class he teaches it in the forestry school and also teaches it to landowners we do the educational part and Louisiana Department of Ag and Forestry actually administers the record keeping to keep track of of uh, the folks that have taken the, te- the the test, and they actually issue cards that look are about the size of a driver's license card, saying that you're a certified burn manager. So a private landowner can become a certified burn manager. Correct. There's two main things you have to have. This class that we have, it's a two-and-a-half-day class for forestry with an uh, uh, actual burn exercise, testing and scoring. And then the second part is to have five burns. You know, a person has to have experienced five burns or done the burn plan and had conducted it. And then they are a full-fledged certified burn manager. What are some of the things that they learn? in the workshop we spend a lot of time on fire weather the weather that affects fire behavior we spend a lot of time on fire ecology and then we spend a lot of time on the burn plan which is key to this um, being a certified burn manager because in the state law the burn plan represents rebuttable proof of non-negligence which means that you were doing the things that you needed to do to do this fire, 
And so you're not negligent. The biggest problem, I think this law that we have protects certified burn managers from unexpected weather changes. We rely on the National Weather Service for the most current weather. When we plan these burns and then when on the day of the burn, we have uh, the burn plan should have a weather forecast for that day. But if something goes awry, then you've done everything you you could for a safe burn, and that gives you some some legal protection. So if something does get out of hand, then they do have protection. Right. Now, this is what I understand, and keep in mind this is a layman's terms. It's legal for anybody to go out and burn. Anybody can do that. But this uh, certified burn manager program has some legal protection. It won't protect anybody from gross negligence. Um, mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. I had heard of about I heard of a, a farmer who was burned off his cornfield, lit the match, had the wind blowing the fire across the field. He had a head fire. It laid down smoke and caused a, a fatal motor accident. I've been trying to find that story in the news so I could read more about it. If anybody knows what that story is, I'd like to know about it so I could read more about it. I know of it through word of mouth, but that's gross negligence. You wouldn't have any protection, whereas if you do everything you're supposed to do and the weather's uncooperative, then you have protection. When you say you've done everything you can, basically you've, you've done the planning, you've done the planning. The planning, you've done check the weather, your fire breaks are in place, your resources are in place, you're doing everything you said you were going to do on the plan. And then if there's a sudden shift in wind or right. gusts of wind. That right. Um, I remember a few years unexpected. ago, um, there was a, either the Fort Polk or the Kasachi were burning, and something about the weather changed, and the smoke laid down because Part of the plan is we're looking at weather that will enable the smoke to lift and then disperse aloft. Smoke settled onto Ritter and the surrounding areas that was unexpected. But I'm I'm pretty sure they had they they were following their burn plan. I have been with U.S. Forest Service crews, and um, yeah, they do very meticulous work. They're very they, professional. Yeah. They're very, very professional. Very precise in what they do as well. Yeah. yeah. If I'm a small landowner mm-hmm. and I want to just learn about prescribed burning, this same class will teach all the benefits of it, mm-hmm. the procedures for it. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you go through all of that and before you get certified, if you will, how do you get five burns under your belt? Well, um, Dr. DeHope does talk about that. It's basically there's no, we, there's no size in prescribed for that size of the fire. Uh, we think you should do a small burn. Let's say your first one is half acre, something. Uh, then the next one could be bigger. And, you know, you learn and, and you build on that experience. Um, start small and just work up to it. Uh, probably a bad idea to do 100 acres your first time. That would be a yeah. bit intimidating, I would but, imagine. Um, but then there are people who've been burning all their lives. And there's an affidavit that states that they sign it 
and it's a legal document that they've had five burns. So that that's a route too. But that's someone with experience right. and has done this for several yeah, but times. They've, yeah, they've been doing it their whole lives, and so they have the experience. I guess in short, this class can allow, a workshop can allow uh, a private small landowner mm-hmm. to manage their forests mm-hmm. properly and not have to put out a greater expense. But there are companies that provide those services, Right. One of my landowners, he has done his own burn, but then um, he hired a a prescribed burn contractor to do it. But he understood what the contractor was doing. I think he would have a better understanding of how the process is rather than, say, a, a landowner that's never had the training or experience and is just relying totally on the contractor to do what they're supposed to do. So I think that that's a helpful for landowners to know what the contractors are doing. So it gives them the education to know if the contractor did what was expected yeah. and, and how it was expected to be done. Right. If I were a landowner, I would ask the contractor, can I see your burn plan for my property? I would encourage that. What are some of the other things if they should be aware of and look out for? Well, I, I, I just like with any other contractor, get references ask about their projects, see if you could talk to other clients, see, you know, to visit with them on, it's just like any other contractor, you try to do your due diligence and make sure that they are uh, professional. Yeah, make sure they got insurance. Yeah. Um, Well, and knowing what they do, I guess, having taken the workshop, uh, would enable you to read the plan more intelligently, I would imagine. Right, right. You would um, understand, especially what weather conditions are they looking for, and um, make sure that they are uh, conducting the burn based on the weather conditions that they plan for. Make sure everything lines up properly. Is there any specific time of year that is more favorable to prescribed burning? It really depends on what you want. I've since learned that uh, you get a different outcome with your vegetation if you did something called a growing season burn versus a winter burn. Uh, the, the vegetation changes, and it's hard to say on a podcast since we don't have any images, but uh, I, I've seen images, slides, where you had a winter burn and then a growing season burn, and, and the vegetation looks different after the burns. Is one better than the other? It just depends on the the objectives, and that gets into a lot of fire ecology that I'm I'm unfamiliar with. Primarily, if you would do it during the winter season, it would be what less effective? Not uh, effective, excuse me. It would be less intense. Less intense. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have certainly wetter months in the winter mm-hmm. most often, although not always. Right. Well, it's. Uh, if you burn the same time every year, you're just gonna you're you're gonna get similar results all the time. Uh, I know our friends at the Nature Conservancy, they uh, they try to burn different times of the year to get different outcomes uh, in their landscape, and that just depends on their own uh, 
their own management objectives. I guess to recap on prescribed burning specifically for forestry, if a landowner is primarily growing pine, it will help with reducing the hardwood competition. That's true, yes. It will help with that. When I drive through the Cassachia and they do regular burns, it looks like a park. It's really kind of nice. You drive down these roads where there's a forest that gets really brushy. Um, so you can just, I, I just, going through a national forest, it just looks nice to me seeing the open uh well, you get out in there, it's taller than it looks, but it looks like a park in some of these places. You know, one thing I was I just kind of came to mind, there's a lot of talk about the fuel that's left on the ground out mm-hmm. west, and right. that's caused some tremendous damage and right. loss of property to folks who live near forests and in forests. Uh, right. Recently, there was a prescribed burn, I think it was in New Mexico. Correct. And that kind of got out of hand, and that caused some damage there. Yeah, it did. And I think about 20 years ago, there was a uh, a prescribed burn that went out of control in New Mexico. But still, um, I'm sorry for those people that, you know, had lost their homes because of this. But uh, we know that if we do nothing, these fires will become more destructive and catastrophic. So we... Uh, we, we we need to burn. I had understood that California is working towards a legislation that will enable more of these burns to occur, to avoid them becoming catastrophic like we've seen. And, and I read this. This was shocked me. But the uh, American Lung Association endorsed prescribed fires. And this is their reasoning. You can control the amount of, of uh, material going into the atmosphere of the fire. With, a, cat- with a, a wildfire catastrophic, it's just, there's no controlling. It's just loading the, uh, the atmosphere with ash and particulates and, and all that, where they, they feel like taking a managed approach to these burns is probably healthier. Uh, there's, there's less of this... Uh, loading of all this junk that goes into the atmosphere interesting yeah it uh, was i think you could find i found that uh where did i find that i think it was it, it was in the context of these catastrophic fires mm-hmm. that i i saw that story that the american lung association thinks prescribed burning's a good idea relative to just letting nature take its course wow interesting uh wouldn't have guessed that. I wouldn't have guessed that either. It was, yeah. it was surprising to me. Most of my experience with this burn program has been with respect to forestry and natural resources, wildlife management. It's been the two-and-a-half-day training. Uh, but Dr. DeHope will do prescribed burning for marshes, and he and Dr. Andy Nyman will tag-team that, and uh, it's a half-day training. It's It's meant for the coastal areas of Louisiana where they are. I know they're trying to manage for um, duck habitat, and I think there's some other environmental reasons that they do that. Recently, you've spearheaded the formation of prescribed burning associations. Can you tell us about that? Well, you're giving me too much credit. Um, A couple of young ladies, they're organizing uh, these prescribed burn associations, which are cooperatives. Both of these young ladies have been in our class classes uh, 
One is uh, Sabrina Clays. She's up in North Louisiana. She's with Quail Forever, and she helped start a prescribed burn association. Then C.C. Richmond with the Louisiana Department of Ag and Forestry has been has started one here in West Central Louisiana, and they ha- have had some burn projects, and the association members help each other out. It, that's why we call it a – it seems like it's a cooperative Mm-hmm. where they help each other out. Right now, there's been a change in how the insurance works. So we're trying to, I know CC's working on uh, dealing with the insurance issues so that all these uh, PBA members can have, have that kind of protection. How does the cooperative work? This is my understanding. The president of our local association, uh, Daryl Eves, is retired from LDAF. So he's had a lot of experience. And he... He does look at the plans and make sure that, that everything is the way it should be. And then um, one burn, uh, a landowner got with, I think, CC said, I want to do a, try and do a burn this day. And she sent out an email, and, and uh, they, they got together. They had their pre-burn meeting, and then they did their burn, and um, they helped each other out. And to get help, you got to give help. So that's the cooperative part of it. Is this a regional thing or statewide? How's that? It's mostly local, regional. It's based on um, the uh, PBAs that we have seen in other states. Our neighbors in Texas, they have several uh, of these burn associations. And it seems like most of them are are intended more for range management. And I think the Midwest has these associations. Again, it's for uh, prairie and, and range management purposes. But it also works for forestry. It does. It does. Uh huh. If anybody has questions concerning prescribed burning or they want to find out more about the PBAs, uh, can they contact you by email? or Sure. How's, how about the best way to get a hold of you? Well, my email is khawkins, K-H-A-W-K-I-N-S, at... Ag Center, A G C E N T E R dot L S U dot E D U. Keith Hawkins with the LSU Ag Center, the area forestry agent, also does a lot in horticulture. Correct. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mind of the Forest, a podcast of the Louisiana Forestry Association. If you'd like to learn more about sustainable forestry, the LFA and its programs, and how you can be part of an organization that supports landowners, loggers, and wood manufacturers in Louisiana, go to our website, www.laforestry.com. Questions and comments can be sent via email to jzerang, J-Z-E-R-I-N-G-U-E, at laforestry.com. And remember, at the Louisiana Forestry Association, we're minding the forest for you. Thank you.